0: Stick Together and 3CR acknowledge the Elders past and present of the Kulin Nations, where this show was produced. We recognise their ongoing struggle for peace, land and justice on this unceded land here and across the country. Welcome to Stick Together, a weekly show on workers, union and social justice issues. I'm your host, James Brennan. Stick Together is brought to you across the country with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Of this week's show is an interview that covers workers' unions and social justice issues as we look at the 20th anniversary of the Valentine's Day anti-war protests across Australia and the world marching against the invasion of Iraq. My guests for this show are two organisers of the Melbourne protest, David Spratt and Jacob Greck. On September 11, 2001, there was a seismic shift in the world. In the years following, a Bush, Cheney and Rumsfeld-led United States of America set their sights on the Middle East, launching wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There have been dramatic shifts in militarism since that day. It was unimaginable to most at that time, the level of surveillance we now accept and use on ourselves and is used on ourselves. The lives lost through those conflicts is a shameful part of the history of not just the US, but all their allies that went with them, including Australia. But the impact of the increased military spending and technology is impacting all of us. The anti-war movement that developed in response to these wars and the war on terror generally was a global, powerful counter to the military-industrial complex. Yet it was not able to sustain its impact throughout the wars. At arguably its peak was a Valentine's Day weekend in 2003, which saw huge crowds across the world with many cities and countries reporting the largest ever protests in those places. The protest in Rome is reported to have had 3 million people at it, claiming Guinness World Record as the largest anti-war protest. The protest kicked off on Friday, Valentine's Day, firstly on Friday morning in Fiji, followed by a huge protest in Melbourne. Two of the organisers of that protest are here with us today as we look back on the 20th anniversary of those protests and that weekend. Welcome, David Spratt and Jacob Greck.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks, James. Well, I guess the circumstances are that the peace movement that had, had really gone on from the Vietnam War through the movement against uranium mining into people for nuclear disarmament in the 1980s had really fizzled out and there was no uh, mass movement uh, um by the time uh, this came along. In the United States, as you said, you had the Bush-Cheney uh, government. Dick Cheney, the vice president, was a sort of operative par excellence of the military industrial complex and the oil industry. And you had this new right-wing philosophy called uh, neoconservatives, uh, who basically said, um, America is going to democratize the world at the point of a gun. So we're going to mil- intervene and overturn dictatorships and bring democracy. Uh, And their only focus was, of course, the oil-producing states, which meant, and we knew this from the start, that this was a war for oil. So the circumstances were there was an American government determined to go to war, partly in Iraq because they were still smarting from Afghanistan and 9-11, and a peace movement in its old form that had died in Australia. The circumstances were that this was really early days of digital communications. There was the internet, there was email. There were no social media apps. Uh, We wanted at one stage a petition for some that actors were leading for people to sign up, and we had to write the petitions from scratch in PHP. There there was nothing to download. Um, All we really had was an email list on a very old program called Topica, where you could sign up and you get an email without pictures, just plain text. So this was just the beginning of the transition from the old forms of organising, which was really bringing large form large organisations together, small organisations together around the table, and really organised in the old style, which was posters, leaflets at the railway station each morning, engaging organisations through through their direct memberships in in in, a, in an era where people still went to meetings with their organisations. So it was really, I guess, the intersection of the old and the new.
0: You were at Trades Hall at that time and organising part of this. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of union um, presence and, you know, the kind of Trades Hall's impact on these protests
2: it had impact in a number of ways first and foremost we were given our head to organize and use trade union facilities i can't speak of how important that was just as david said number of union officers photocopiers were run flat chat and we had an ac- access to an office at trades hall it was pretty much accepted that my role as building manager was seconded to doing whatever needed to be done for the for the peace movement and the rally and also, I think it gave a an indication to the broader public that it wasn't just a bunch of peacenik hippies organising it. This was um, organised labour. And, of course, having organised labour involved and having to peak bodies. And I must point out here, of course, um, and beware a certain amount of cynicism, that this was able to happen because it was a liberal government, all right? It, um, so there was um, there were no stops put on the trade union movement for objecting to a Labor government's move to war, which as you saw with Hawke in the first stage of the Iraq war in 1991, um, would have been just the same. So the union movement were also able to to leverage the anti-war sentiment into an anti-liberal government sentiment. But it was it was very important. Even having the space, that one stage. Even talking about printing, you'd remember David Ron. We bought, a, we actually bought a, an offset printing press and put it in the back room off the, um, off the loading dock. And we had, we had a bloke in there running off um, offset printing. Yeah, all day, all day and all night. So it wasn't it wasn't just using photocopiers. We bought a printing press specifically mm-hmm. for the VPN.
0: And I think you know the. I remember protesting around the Afghanistan um, war, and you know, on the streets in Melbourne. And initially, as the um, before public sentiment had shifted, uh, there was a lot of abuse from you know the public and people spitting on you. And you know, it was quite a hostile environment. What what did you guys feel about you know the initial days of organising this protest? And did you know that? it was going to be as big as it was.
2: On that hostile environment, I actually felt a little bit, I felt that a little bit. Obviously, it's always there. But one thing I do remember very strongly, and um, first of all, i got to say that the big peace rally was the big peace rally, and um, unlike anything Melbourne had seen, really. However, Melbourne was one of the first, well, was the first city in the world to have big a city. peace rally In the days after 9-11, we held, you know, 9-11 was on a Tuesday night. In Melbourne, we had a rally with um, church leaders, on a Saturday calling for a calm and balanced response to the events of 9-11. So it's not like there was nothing and then there was the peace rally. It was a gradual, it was a a build-up. But as to the um, the hostility, while it was there, one thing I did notice was the difference to the first war in Iraq in 1991 after um, the invasion of of Kuwait, where I was in, well, moving between Sydney and Melbourne at the time organizing protests, but... um, the overwhelming sense from the street was hostility. Um, we were careful about being alone in the evening. It was very, very, it was very, very nasty. Whereas in 2000, after 2001, um, I remember feeling that, handing out things on the streets, having stalls on the streets, and the overwhelming um sentiment I got of the people who stopped to talk to me was not dirty, rotten, commie misfit or whatever. It was, yeah, but what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. So there was a sense there seemed to be a sense of resignation, I think, more, um, which was at, bigger than the sense of hostility in my, you know, at least where I was in the inner city of Melbourne.
1: Yeah, I think, I think, James, the, the issue was that with Afghanistan and that war being, you know, going on for more than a year. Uh, Afghanistan was our boys fighting these nasty quote unquote terrorists who just bombed 9/11 so that was a tricky space but when it came to Iraq it was a completely different story and one of the things that I think the Victorian Peace Network did really well was to bring in really broad uh range of large organizations Jacob's talked about trade school there were two other really big umbrella bodies involved one was the Victorian Council of Churches so the the, the movement had really you know a lot of support from the from the, the progressive part of the Catholic Church, from the United Church, uh, the Anglican Church, and so on, and also the Islamic Council of Victoria, who had learned the lessons, I, I think, about the anti you know, anti uh, uh, Muslim phobia, the, the the phobia towards Muslims early on, and and by joining us, by by having Muslims and Christians and trade unions and so on together, it was a much bigger face, and and I think it was the breadth the breadth of the movement as you know as well as all the uh, grassroots community groups out in suburbs who are actually reconstructed very quickly that um, that brought a, a, a breadth of the movement. And I mean, on the day of the of the rally, I mean, for people who weren't there, this was a rally uh, on, on a Friday. It was Valentine's Day. And we decided to go to Valentine's Day, as Jacob said, because we were the first large city in the world that could kick off this event. And we did a crazy poster called uh, "Make Love, Not War," and people went around the city. And not a single shopkeeper uh, uh, refused to put put the posters up. The, the sentiment was that strong. It gathered at, at um, uh, the state library and was due to march down to Federation Square, which at that time had never had a large uh, uh, protest event. So we said we would we would christen Federation Square. We didn't quite understand how big that christening would be. And by the time the rally got underway people were solid from uh, the state library to Federation Square. And in fact, when we decided to march, which you you couldn't do because there was a traffic jam of people in front of you, people actually marched down three streets. That was Russell Street, Swanson Street and Elizabeth Street to try and get from the north to the south of the city. And people estimated the crowd at somewhere between 150 and 250,000 people. Uh, And, uh, there were people trying to get their cars out of car parks instead that took five hours to get the car out of the CBD, which was a sign of how jammed the city was. But I remember right at the end of the event, because I was up at the, the, the library and going down to Federation Square just as it was finishing. And there were half a dozen young Middle Eastern women uh, with headscarves on dancing to the music yeah. that was playing. And I mean, that was a really good sign that these people who had been subject to a whole lot of racism felt the freedom and the support of the crowd and and the strength to to be dancing.
2: Yeah. And and the crowd was very, very upbeat. It was a bit strange because it was obviously calling on the Australian government not to send troops over to the Middle East to slaughter people. So, but but nonetheless, the fact that people were there and people saw that they were no longer in a mi- in a minority, because a lot of these people they're not people they you know you say two hundred thousand people there's um it's impossible to say how many there were because they they closed the trains and the trams coming into the city. We had we had reports of people at railway stations all over the place, done up in peace movement and flags regalia and badges whatever. So who knows how many it would have been had they been able to get into the city. But just a memory I had of how packed it was on Swanston Street, I remember the media needed the shot of a march, so we had to get a whole lot of marshals down in front of the town hall, and we pushed people back up Swanston Street about half a block and down towards Federation Square about half a block so that we had 100 metres for the television cameras and the newspapers to take photos of the front of the rally. Because in reality, there was no front of the rally. But it was a very, very upbeat, upbeat thing. And this, again, comes in terms of not just peace rallies in Melbourne, but you need to, I mean, it was a confluence of, of situations. Not only was there a Liberal government federally, which meant a lot easier to get left factions to come on board against the federal government than you would have had if you were a Labour government. But you also had Steve Brax and a Labour government in Victoria, So you had a sense of allowing things to happen. And, you know, up until um, the Peace Rally, the biggest rallies were, of course, the, I wasn't in Melbourne at the time, but I've seen the films, and the anti-Jeff Kennett rallies. So people did have, what's the word, a history, a tradition of coming together in Melbourne. But as David said, this was the start of a new type of organising as well, where we were using email lists and using Topica. And there were people on You know, the web exists in a very rudimentary form, but still there are a lot of activists around the world who are doing this thing on bulletin boards still. Um, So was that really connection between the way people organised in the past and the way they were going to move on to organise in the future.
0: You've both spoken about some of the, um, you know, bigger organisations that are part of the organising, you know, the council churches and Islamic groups and... Um, you know, the unions and things like that. I wonder if you can talk about how the organizing of, you know, obviously some of those mainstream organizations have got quite differing views to some of the peace activists and anarchists and socialists and stuff that might generally be part of these kind of campaigns. How did, as a group, were you able to you know, manage those differing views and ideas about how things should proceed?
1: Well, we had a, a fairly simple idea. So any legitimate organisation could could send a representative along to the organising committee. So is every organisation have a vote? So that could be small socialist groups, uh, uh, campus groups, uh, or peace groups. But we had one, one extra rule, and that was that the three really big umbrella bodies, Trades Hall and the Islamic Council and the Victorian Council of Churches, who in themselves represented many organisations, we had a rule that for, for, for any important or large decision, those three organisations had to agree
2: they basically had a right of veto
1: they had a right of veto said so this was this was a way of saying to some certain conservative churches listen all the rat bags are not going to stack up a whole lot of people into this organisation and ram through decisions you don't want and and that i think built a really a really a good sense of solidarity around the organisations because the three big organisations because they had this right of veto were all on board and i don't think it led to more conservative organisations it just it led to more 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 unity around the things we decided to do. And I think the the second thing was, it was a little bit of uh, Chairman Mao's Let a Thousand Flowers Bloom in that the Victorian Peace Network was very clear that we, in a democratic way, not the current NGO professional boards and no members, um, you know, command uh, style, that we would organise some major events but everything else was to be done by all the individual affi- uh, affiliates in their own way, in their own time, in their own place. So one of the things we did was, I remember early on, looking around my uh, email lists and Jacobs and others, and looking for people who had been active in peace groups at the suburban level, and literally bringing them fifty together, fifty of them together in a meeting at Trades Hall um, three months before, and saying. I know we know a lot of these peace groups are defunct, but we think out in in you know the, the regional areas and the suburbs, there's some really good synergy with with, with uh, union activists and local United Church people and so on. Can you put together an on the ground local community uh, peace group? a new? And that's where a lot of the work was done. You know, mm-hmm. United Church people would walk, would organise a walk from Torquay to Geelong along the cliff, and this sort of thing. So it was, it was some major central events that, that, that were, were coordinated, but uh, the, all the rest of activity was up the affiliates. And there was no commerce people saying you can't say this, you can't say that. It was a very old style you're autonomous in the things you do to build up to these big events
2: the reason there are so many different organizations not just in vpn but the reason that there are so many different organizations is that different mobs have different focuses now obviously there's a difference between the islamic council of victoria and or the islamic council of australia i think and the australian council of churches the difference is that is it is in the name and the trade and the trade soil council we have different focuses but But even bigger than those differences, you know, we had we had churches who agreed that war was a sin and we had small activist collectives who considered sin to be no less oppressive than the concept of religion. And as long as you and as long as you don't, we weren't going to have those debates Um, because we had one thing in common, the Victorian Peace Network, and that was to get Australia to not send troops and to. Not support the United States adventurism in the Middle East. Now, now that, as David said, that didn't mean that different groups couldn't do their own thing. I mean, I was one of the central people in there, of course, but that's not to say that when I wanted to do something, I knew the VPN wouldn't endorse. So I did not grab the renegade activist hat and do something as renegade activist or Oz piece. You know, a lot of people, particularly the smaller groups, I was um, just before when I got to Bendigo and. Uh, half an hour before this recording, I thought oh, I'd better look something up on online and look at some of the history to get me brain straight. And there was an article in one of the left papers basically condemning the Victorian peace movement because we refused to call out the peace to call a rally for when George Bush visited. And strangely enough, David Spratt and I were the two people mentioned as as not um, as as not endorsing it. The bottom line was that we didn't call a rally, other groups called a rally, and we funded buses up there, we printed material for them, we did everything we could, except say Victorian Peace Network was calling this rally because the because the three main groups didn't agree that calling a rally was a good thing. So it wasn't worth having the argument. The rally went ahead our resources went into it, but it wasn't a VPN rally. Do you think that
0: sense of urgency around, you know, that there is this direct conflict that's happening, and therefore we need to not focus on some of those, one could argue kind of, you know, they're political debates that need to happen, but perhaps not the time for it. Do you think that kind of was the driving force to be able to have that kind of Approach that you guys are talking about.
1: Look, I think there was a real sense of urgency because I, I think the organising committee came together in July two thousand and two, and somewhat speculatively, we decided to call a rally four weeks after we first sat round a table in August of two thousand and two. Just a, and we I mean it was very primitive and and we'd hardly we hadn't done much work, and fifty thousand people turned up, and the, and we thought the peace movement had been dead forever, and that was a really clear really sign that there was this untapped really large public sentiment against the war. And that was really, you know, that event in some way was the most crucial because we learned learnt a great lesson from that, that, there was a really receptive audience out there. And we, I mean, I helped draft, I think, five sentences, which were the five founding principles of the Victorian Peace Network. And it was simply, we are going to unite to stop this war. And there was a bit of analysis about uh, oil and 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 justice and so on. but it, that they're very simple and we never varied from those five principles and we never acted on any issue outside those five principles. so there there was lots of discussion. I mean lots of less groups would yell at different people behind closed doors about what they were doing. but in public there was unity in action absolutely and it and it, and it, it and it I don't think that ever varied for for the whole time. um I mean, the other thing I think is that, particularly on the day of the end, people were just transfixed by being there by the size of the crowd. And one of the indications is there's a crowd of maybe a quarter of a million people. There was not one incidence of violence, of something going wrong. I mean, the crowd in itself uh, uh, was, was really self-managing in, t- in looking after people, making sure nothing went wrong. It was this, this incredible sense of very... Uh, A strong peaceful solidarity but also um, people owning the space and and nothing went wrong we didn't need a a single cop or a single ambulance we didn't need any of it because because this crowd knew exactly why they were there and they were steadfast in that purpose.
0: I wonder you know David you spoke before about some of the protests in other parts of Australia as well and um, you know I think the protest in Sydney was even bigger than the Melbourne. I was in Sydney actually for that weekend and um, you know marching through Hyde Park and there was a really strong and really big union presence at that protest as well but there was protest right across the country I think you know small towns yeah. um, you know organize their own protests and I wonder you know what was the um, you know like was there a, was there any idea of a national kind of a network to link all of those groups together and, and what was the organizing like between the different states and cities
1: Look in a very primitive way on that day. I mean, I think uh, because it was Valentine's Day, and we could do our love, not war, um, moment. And in fact, that weekend, the New York Times ran a front page story, which which I I think said from Melbourne to New York, New York, people protest around the world, and there was actually a picture of Federation Square on the front page of the New York Times. But certainly in Sydney on the Saturday, there were three hundred thousand people. There were. Crowds I think, 100,000 in Brisbane, 50,000 in Adelaide. I mean, all these cities put on largely the largest public protest events I had ever seen. Uh, And, you know, in Alice Springs and Darwin and Cairns and all sorts of places. Um, Broken
2: Hill.
1: Yes. uh, um, In terms of coordination, it was primitive. Um, I guess Victoria got off the ground a bit earlier and we led the, led in a way. But, I mean, the, the groups were pretty much united around the same strategy and the same messages. So there'd be occasionally, once a month, there'd be a phone hookup of half a dozen people for an hour saying, when's the next date? Any clever ideas? Uh, and decisions would be made very quickly. I mean, I think what really helped us so There was coordination, but not as you would understand it today. It wasn't micromanaged. If we all managed to have rallies on the same day, we thought that was a good outcome. And, I mean, I think one of the really important things was just the breadth of opposition. And some people uh, who may not have been here at that time will see Andrew Wilkie uh, as an MP in the parliament today. But Andrew Wilkie in 2002 was absolutely crucial because he was an intelligence analyst who knew a lot about what was going on and he came out in opposition to the war, and he was probably the single most potent messenger uh, Mm. across the whole of the the mobilisation. Yes, you had your your archbishops and the Bob Browns and so on, but having Andrew Wilkie, somebody from inside the beast, being really articulate, about why this was a war for oil um, um, was transformative. And, and that's why, you know, you'd go along to a media conference and journalists at other times would be uh, hostile, would just look at you and say, before, you, before they started recording, they'd look at you and say, we'll support you, say whatever you want to say, and we'll run it, which I've never experienced before or past with media coverage. Hmm.
2: That's great. It it. It was, it was crazy. And I just want to say on Melbourne going first and the big rallies around the country without wanting to, you know, labour the point, but the fact that Melbourne went first was one of the reasons the big rallies were able to happen around the country and then also around the world because you've got people in the next day because you've got people in Sydney or Adelaide or Perth or Vienna or wherever not really deciding, oh, do I go to this? Do I go to that? I haven't been to a peace rally for 25 bloody years. Seeing the news of the huge rally in Melbourne was was the way of saying, this is okay, this is safe this is mainstream. And so it was really good Melbourne's role in pushing that, pushing that forward.
0: That's it for Stick Together this week. I've been your host, James Brennan. Thank you for tuning in and thank you to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their support. If you'd like to catch up on any previous episodes, go to the 3CR website or listen to the podcast in all the usual spots. If you'd like to contact the producer of the show, please email sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. Until next time, stick together.
3: participation, but sometimes people be hesitating, the government must respect the will of the people, the government serve the people, the people don't serve the government. Folding registration with no scope of education. It's a waste of time with no hope. It's just frustration. It ain't no choice when you're picking the voice of a nation. You're just contributing to the status quo's preservation. Plus, we ain't got no universal health care. And who the hell care about crack mothers and welfare? Listening to Dead Press, hell yeah. With Jay-Z verse. Thinking how we were snatched like old lady purses. Dropped on America's soil for a greater purpose. Plus, I know my people got layers. You gotta break the surface. The way I rap got the man nervous. Frodo failed Bush got the ring. Snitches like I gotta sing. Fixing elections like it's not a thing Somebody please expose the fact It's going back to one party They call President Bill Clinton a whoremonger Voted him out and replaced him with a whoremonger It's like a jumper sometimes I'm at the front of the line I ain't tripping but I stumble sometimes Then I get right back up Then I get right back
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.